welcome back to Unstandardized English. I am JPB Gerald. This is a podcast about epistemological whiteness and racial linguistic ideologies. I never remember to actually say that, but I said it this time. Um, so this one is sort of a sequel. If you remember, if you've been listening, the season premiere of season two, um, way back in early September, was with Caitlin Green, Dr. Caitlin Green, and we talked about how cancel culture is mostly nonsense um, and how we need to stop this discourse where people complain about cancel culture. Well, wouldn't you know, it hasn't gotten better. It sure has not. Uh, with people all the way up into politics talking about how if you incite an insurrection and have consequences for it, that is cancel culture. I mean, I wish that's what cancel culture was. If it was like I did a bad and then bad things happened, well, fine. That would be fine with me. But anyway, the discourse is not good. Um, but unfortunately for language people um, and people in and around academia, there is a subset of these people complaining about cancel culture um, things we talked about in the previous one with Steven Pinker and all that, but there's a whole group of very, very online men, it's pretty much all men, but not entirely, who talk a lot about wokeness, who talk about the problems with anti-racism, something called the woke elect. It's it's a mess. And I'm talking with Dr. Caitlin Green again, because she has basically been on the beat on the internet following the nonsense they've been saying. And we're really going to talk about why, well, we know why it's a problem, but, you know, what the problems with what they're saying is. Um, that sentence doesn't agree grammatically, but that's fine. And, you know, <laughs> where we can go from here, because honestly, we can't really have the most prominent language people outside. Yeah, if you listen to this podcast, you're someone who pays attention to, like, Nelson Flores and Jonathan Rosa and uh, the vocal fries. Um the doctors of the vocal fries and uh you know people like that so you're not coming to me if you're just only hearing about you know these issues for the first time i'm probably not the first place um unless you're my friend, friend which you know great but if you're just a person who doesn't know anything about language linguistics whatever and you just you know want to find out something that you come across you're probably going to come across these guys first and they're saying some harmful shit Right. You know, you know, people like John McWhorter, he has a column in the Atlantic and he can just show up and write whenever he wants to and just say harmful shit. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the racial aspect of that. Um, but my dad even sent me a link to a John McWhorter article about he was talking about white fragility. And uh, my dad has no reason to know about all the other harmful shit that John McWhorter says. So. If you are not in our little niche, these people are much more prominent than people like me or those luminaries that I spoke about. And uh, that's the problem. In the mainstream, these people represent the language world. And because they're saying all this harmful shit, as I keep saying, um, we need to take them down a peg. They're not going to listen to this, but maybe somebody will tell them about it. I don't know. All right.
Okay, so back on Unstandardized English, I am J.P.B. Gerald, which you know because I said it about two minutes ago, and I'm back again with Dr. Caitlin Green to talk about some of these men. Dr. Green, would you like to introduce yourself to the people once again? Hi, everybody. I am Caitlin Green. Uh, I'm a linguist. I work on discourse and pragmatics, um, and mostly what I'm interested in is how people talk about how people talk about racism and sexism and all the other isms, um, especially looking right now at the backlash against those kinds of pursuits. Yeah, so there's there's been, yeah, it's, it's interesting what, um, because the official federal stance has changed, obviously, for obvious reasons. Uh, but the discourse hadn't really changed that much. There's, it's quieter in the sense that there's one microphone that has been turned off. Yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's, you know, that 1776 commission thing is gone. Um, I wonder how, you know, silly some of the schools who rushed to implement it feel now. Um, Cause I saw these like, you know, announcements come out we have to do all these things and then so they did all that effort and then didn't matter. right and you had to know with the election coming up that like yeah. it could easily be for nothing right so you <laughs> right i can see them pausing like we're going to pause all of these things until we find out what's going to happen but no anyway um so there are a lot of these men though and they're not all men right uh but they're mostly men and they spent, I don't know what, what it is, because it seems like, it seems like they just start talking. Like, can you trace why they, on a given day, why they start talking? Like, what starts these conversations on a given well, day? Some of them are never not talking, right? Okay. So there's, like, the James Lindsay's that are, they post, like, honestly, hundreds He's conceptual. Of He's conceptual. They answer back. He is very conceptual. <laughs> They, they are constantly in these contentious conversations with other users. They're constantly retweeting people with slam dunks. They're constantly answering their own followers back. It's just nonstop. So what makes him start tweeting is he breathed in today. Um, and then you get somebody who's a little bit less frequent who there's going to be some story about somebody getting canceled or challenged really just just questioned and that'll be enough for them to get going yeah there's a lot of avenues with this i mean a lot of this these these men remind me when i was like 24 23 i don't know um and when i was my last year in south korea i was really bored um and i realized that i wanted to do more with my time when i was on the internet so i started these discussions I posted like Facebook notes, you know, remember when notes were like a thing on Facebook? Yeah. Yeah. So I post these notes and I would just tag people in the note. Right. And you can only tag 20, 25 people. So I would tag people um, and people would have a discussion and I would just like really look forward to the responses. And I, and then I have a smartphone. So like I had to wait until I got home to see what people said. It was just so exciting. What were the arguments going to be? Right. And then when I came back to New York, like I remember I, I had a smartphone and I would see the notification. I'm like, I want to write these paragraphs, man. You know, and and just I just remember that feeling of just like just like my breath was held in until I could just 
respond to the argument. And so I just feel like they must be feeling the same way that I did, except I was 24 and I had nothing to do with my, like, I didn't have a job. So like, I, this just was my, this was my life. So I, it just like, don't they have something better to do? I understand everyone's mostly online, especially people who are more comfortable and all that, but also I don't know that this is why. Yeah. I do find myself regularly astonished when one of them discloses their age and they're, you know, 20, 30, 40 years older than me. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, I'm, I'm tweeting this much because my baby's napping. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, what, yeah, I don't know. There's, they throw a lot of things around. And, um, you know, I mean, I have thoughts on the fact that I think, I feel like there's a lot of weird fear and insecurity in the way that they're acting. Cause like they really could just stop. Um, yeah. I've been going through Steven Pinker's tweets specifically because he is a person of interest to me. Um, Cause I'm, you know, I'm interested in how these ideas go from the like really squalid, nobody likes them types to the kind of prestigious, you know, very wandered kind of personality. So Steven Pinker is on that end of it, right? Um, and he, it seems like, really over-identifies with people that he thinks have been unfairly criticized, usually white people, usually white men, who something happened with them. And when he posts about it, he'll give a detail about something similar that happened to him. So a professor had an investigation happen because she used the N-word in her class. And he will post a story about it and say, well, a couple of years ago, I mentioned the N-word and my students got mad at me, but we ended up making it a positive discussion. It's like, well, that's not what the story was about, first of all. Um, Why would you want to be part of that? Like, you just leave it over there. (laughs) And, you know, but, but this happens over and over again. And when he does things that people hate, like, you know, working with Alan Dershowitz or whatever, um, or or defending somebody who really did something heinous, you can see in the way he talks about it that he is identifying with that person really, really closely, that he's seeing them as himself, and he sees himself as a maligned person, a person who's been taken advantage of, a person who's been punished for doing nothing wrong. It's just sort of what it reminds me of a little bit is during, and of course it's not unrelated to this, but there were people I knew, not well, well, let's, one particular guy who I knew uh, through, a, you know, I'm a runner and I knew, you know, I knew a bunch of runners around New York, right? And so um, after, you know, all of Me Too stuff started, um, the, or sorry, this version of it, because obviously it started a long time before that, but I mean, the, the more recent hashtag, uh, this guy posted some inane nonsense about how like, oh, what, I can't give a woman a hug at work. And I'm just like, my thought is, first of all, why are we, Why would you want to do that? Like, what is the point? That's just a weird thing to say, man. Um, and, and there's a much, much, Thanks. yeah, it's just like, you know, I've gotten one hug at work and it was when someone like I had said goodbye to someone on her last day. And then she asked if she could give me a hug. She asked, first of all, she asked, and then she gave me a hug. It's just like, that. that's, it was her last day. And I also just didn't just do it, <laughs> right. uh, you know, um, Anyway, so a bunch of people got in these mentions and to be like, dude, what, why, what, what question? But like, he, it, it's this weird thing of like, and I'm not saying that people who say 
less serious stuff or do less serious stuff aren't capable of doing worse stuff. But what I'm saying is that they'll, for some reason, they think that they're, you know, not all that's like, I can't give a woman a hug at work. Like if a woman says it's okay for you to hug her, of course you could do that, right? No one is saying that you can't do this thing. This is not about that thing. (laughs) Right. That's not, this is not that thing. Why are you so worried about this thing? Right. And it it reminds me of that. This like, you know, this is a slightly not good thing that you're mentioning that you are aligning with this much worse stuff. Why don't you just let the people over there be worse? (laughs) Just leave, leave them over there. You don't know. We talked about that in the cancel culture episode, right? Like people really think they're all on the brink of getting canceled. Right. He, now with Pinker and some, you know, someone like him, like, you know, there have been efforts to, to, to take away some of his influence. And I think that although he still has plenty of it, he, you know, I think there must've been a point at which he was considered unimpeachable. Uh, And I think regardless of his money and power to a lot of these people being considered unimpeachable is what they want and if you are not unimpeachable then you got to go full heel turn and just like well then I don't care everybody's gonna hate me and that's fine uh they can't just be a person who is in the public sphere who is occasionally disagreed with right they got to be loved or they got or I'm just gonna be hated that's it fine that's it they can't you know that's it um and that it's like a a complex psychological thing they're going through when they're like, I'm not loved anymore by everyone. <laughs> yeah, so. and you can see it in the language. It's catastrophic. It's it's Orwellian, it's Maoist, it's the raging hordes, it's an onslaught. You know, all of the metaphors that they use are either like siege metaphors, religious extremism metaphors, and totalitarianism ones. And you're just like, buddy, some people wrote a letter saying maybe you weren't such an excellent guy. <laughs> that's not a that's not a rampaging horde. It's some people who wrote a letter. So let's talk about this this Orwellian thing. Because this this is this is this comes up a lot. Um, and people have only read one book or maybe like half I don't, don't think they've read that book. <laughs> don't think they've read that book. They're not if, they, if they read it, they didn't understand it. Um, <laughs> and uh, I mean, we'll get into it, but like, I, I always find it interesting, like Orwell depicting a specific type of totalitarianism somehow means that his name is synonymous with totalitarian. I, I don't know. I don't know how that happened. I mean, you know, but uh, <laughs> like, anyway, and it, he also wrote a lot of books. So, yeah. right? These, these free speech obsessionists, absolutists, uh really latched onto this idea of wrong think and double speak and they and new speak right not double speak and so they were like you know oh just because i had a controversial opinion um now i'm accused of wrong think and you see wrong think throughout um all of them and thought crime they say thought crimes. and thought crime yeah because yeah because half of them didn't read the book and they only know about thought crime right <laughs> Um, and so then, you know, that that is a really attractive uh, metaphor, because if you're being criticized for saying something that really is wrong or, or harmful, then you can just point to that and say, look, this is what you're doing. You're accusing me of not uh, thinking the way that, you know, the gods want me to think. 
Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a lot of this, I think, a lot of these people are people who have probably always been like, forget about oppression and racism and all that stuff for a moment. I think a lot of people have always been somewhat uncomfortable with like anything like postmodern or post-structural or whatever. Um, because now, not that everything about postmodern or post-structural is, is good, but you know what I'm saying. Um, uh, it's just challenging orthodoxy in general and not even in terms of, or, of oppression, like just challenging the accepted views. Um, and they're getting out decades of frustration I'm like you people have been making up words for so long and now you're turning these made up words on me and I will not stand for it. You know, stop making up these words. Um, which as you know, and as anyone listening to this knows, every word was made up at some point, but um, <laughs> the, in fact, part, meaning from that's natural and fine. <laughs> right? Part of the point is that many words are being either created or, or reframed or solidified or whatever you want to say is because different people are, exercising power to do so and that's really i think what the problem is is that they they can focus on the words all they want it's who's making the words and who's saying that i'm i'm i have power over this word and who who is described by this word because everybody like all these words have been made up by people but they're usually made up by dominant groups or dominant groups take them from less powerful groups Mm -hmm. um and so yeah the the they think that by saying that, you know, maybe you shouldn't say that, that's racist. It's the same as saying double plus good or whatever's happening, but something like that. Yeah, um, and it extends to, you know, beyond parody where somebody who calls themselves a linguist will deny the existence of dog whistles because it doesn't benefit them. Steven Pinker in his own writing has talked about dog whistles as a thing and then in the last couple of years, once people started pointing out that like, hey, why are you so obsessed with like urban violence? What's that about? Um, then he suddenly goes, dog whistles are like a hallucination. People are just like making up that they heard it so they can yell at you for no good reason. Yeah. I mean, the point of dog whistles is not that they're imaginary. Like the reason that they're called dog whistles is because some people can hear them <laughs> right like it's like a, like dog whistles are not emet like an actual dog whistle is not inaudible it's just that it's inaudible to us right. uh, well, well the principle behind discourse is that we've all been language using humans for our whole lives consuming and producing language and so we have a lot of essentially Uh, frequency-based associations in our heads, right? We know what words show up together. We know what words show up how often. And dog whistles are a natural product of that, that we know that these people who are interested in doing these racist things keep using these words. And so now these words have that association. It's not voodoo magic. It's just normal. It's a thing that happens with words that we make associations and we learn about them over time. Yeah. But yeah, so I mean, now McWhorter would say that you're the woke elect for bringing that up. (laughs) Uh, Which is fun for me. I like the power. I've never been elect. It's I don't know. I mean, do you know where he? Where did you? What did that? From what you told me, that phrase, the woke elect, sort of built over some time in what he was saying. Right, he didn't start with the woke elect. 
Right. In fact, he started using woke as just a point of interest and not as a pejorative at all in, in like 2016. That's how he was talking about it. And then over time, it started to be useful to use it as an insult. And then um, around early 2020 or the summer of 2020, he came up with this thing called the elect. Um, and it came out of something that he'd been kind of piloting uh, in just conservative media since 2016 or so, where he was talking about anti-racism as a religion or a cult. Uh, and so specifically, he took this word from Calvinism and he said, okay, so we're calling them the elect. There are some like shadowy, powerful cabal of people who are just like in charge of what is woke and what's okay. And they are also inciting woke mobs. So the elect are, it, it all just, it, it sounds so like a conspiracy theory, really, when you go through it. So yeah, it's like there's these powerful people enforcing wokeness and inciting mobs of people to go attack people who are insufficiently woke. Yeah. Uh, what's fun for me is while I've been tracking the use of this word, woke, and its collocation with elect, is that James Lindsay was using it in 2019 before McWhorter ever started. The woke elect phrase? Mm-hmm. Okay, so what I hear in that story is that as much as they would like to pretend otherwise, these people are just the same grievance politics bullshit as the people in DC a few weeks ago. Uh, it's just that they have big words. Yep. So it's just grievance politics. They, they think that they are under attack and they have to save, not the country, but they have to save, I don't know, whatever institution they believe in. Um, which is racism? Like, like when, when you like break it down a little bit, you're just like, wait a second, what are they, what are they protecting here? That it's just like, wait, wait. Um, like, like the people wearing the, the, the sweatshirt that says anti Antifa, and it's just like now reduce your fraction. Right. <laughs> it's like, what, what, what do you think that that means? Yep. Um. And, uh, and that's the thing is it's it's reactionary it's totally about defending the status quo with the little hat on top that says actually i'm a heterodox thinker i'm pushing uh, against the orthodoxy oh my god the heterodox yeah so there's the heterodox academy right which mcwhorter is a part of and which pinker is wait that's an actual academy oh it's not an it's just a, like oh they call themselves right? okay they have a podcast they have a website um, but yeah, they call themselves the Heterodox Academy, and it's all just such stodgy old anti-PC stuff that, you know, was happening before we were born. I have my, my friend who I've mentioned on here several times and talked to you about, he's, he's the first time I heard the phrase heterodox was from him, um, saying that, you know, I consider myself fairly heterodox, and I'm just like, oh my god. Uh, words like, um, like politically homeless, that just makes my brain hurt. What is that? Oh, God. Uh, I don't even, I mean, I can figure out what it means. I don't even want to go down that road. Um, <laughs> it's like, when you think about it, it they, what, what, what they're trying to say, I think, is 
we don't believe in anything dogmatic, right? We don't believe in anything, an orthodoxy, right? It's an opposite orthodox, right? Um, and what they mean by orthodox is, is dogma, right? But they are creating their own dogma that's about being against what they perceive to be a dogma. So I don't really know that it holds up to scrutiny is what I have to say. Even if we weren't talking about the issues of like racism and stuff like that, like just the conceptualization of what, it just doesn't work, it doesn't make sense. Um, it just falls well, they apart. They love to shout about ideology and you guys have an ideology. And I explained to my students in Introduction to Linguistics that ideologies are something that everybody has. Yeah. Nobody's free of ideology and some ideologies are true. It's not just a fake thing, right? So like linguists have the ideology that all languages are, you know, equally good. Um, well, they should, they should. Well, most <laughs> linguists do. Um, <laughs> I was like, I don't know about that, but. <laughs> yeah. Um, or, you know, we have the ideology that language is only something that humans can do. And that is based on, you know, rules that we kind of made up about whether other animals, what they do is language, but it, it's ultimately borne out by a certain set of features that we're the only ones that have. So, you know, ideologies can be anything, but these guys love to point and go, ideology, you have one. And I don't, I'm heterodox. Yeah, this idea that, I mean, it just reminds me of the people who rant about um, identity politics and how identity politics is bad. Um, and so therefore they're saying they don't strive to identity politics, but all politics are identity politics. It's just if you don't talk about the identity, it's the status quo identity. <laughs> um, so if you're reacting, so they, they don't, it's just, it just seems so empty to be this, to be this interested in, maintaining the status quo like that is such a strange like that's not that's got to be boring i don't know it just well, seems they like find new and creative ways to make it seem like it's a, a a new thing um you know the heterodox thing always reminds me of people who keep saying like conservatism is the new punk rock or i just the other day saw a tweet that said gender critical is the new punk rock oh that's uh, yeah i mm. gender critical um talk about some 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 newspeak um yeah. <laughs> the, the, which it also doesn't even make sense, right? Because they're not being critical of gender anyway. Um, critical of gender, right? <laughs> interested in challenging the way it works, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You're, you're like you're you're not being critical anyway. Um, that's a whole other. Although, the, although it's not though, because a lot of these people like the with, when they get to the quillet world like they're all kind of the same thing yep the quillette world the counterweight world it's all people who are they have trouble dealing with race and they have a lot of trouble dealing with gender i mean the quillette the <laughs> I, I have a lot of it just they put so much energy into this like um, the reason that I mentioned in the intro before I was talking to you is that um, like this is if people who are coming into this conversation and they don't know that much about it um, are probably just like yeah but what does it matter right it's just people are academics mostly arguing with with each other on the internet and that 
in itself doesn't it doesn't matter but like we don't matter that much but the problem is that these people your pinkers and i don't know where Lindsay works where does Lindsay work do you know where Lindsay works well he doesn't uh, work anywhere he got a math phd and then he went off to do the socal squared thing okay um <laughs> he works so, for himself okay so that's the thing a lot of them a lot of them kind of work for themselves now right that's, so they so they'll say well i'm not tied down to anything like mcwater likes to say that but he like what lectures at columbia or something like that yeah he's at columbia uh, yeah, but he but he's like he's not technically a professor, so it's like he's like ah technically I'm not encumbered by the structures of the all right whatever dude. Um, although I kind of feel that way about myself sometimes. Um, yeah, but he's an interesting one because he comes from a long line of academics. That, you know, just that's just been the path. Right, and but my point is that these people have influence. Like that's the problem, right? If they were just doing this on the internet, it'd be a problem. But it wouldn't be that much of a problem because right. who cares? Uh, but then these people have the option to, I don't just mean like selling books or whatever, because there's horrible people selling books out there. It's it's like McWhorter has like an Atlantic column to say whatever he wants, basically. That's right. Um, Anything he wants. And Pinker, he has um, this big you know PR firm he can just ask them to reach out to anybody he wants that's why he had all those glowing profiles written about him and the New York Times the Atlantic everywhere it's right so like it's 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 the platform that's the problem because like there's there's plenty look there's always gonna be people with shitty views um and that's not that it doesn't matter but it's it's not it's not unique to now, or even these views are not unique to now like the particulars of what they're saying are unique to now but the general views like people spending just just hot air on defending racism in a backwards way it's just how racism has been forever like there's there's this that's the thing one that i've noticed that when i do when i look back at like the history of of the way whiteness has been defined and described like these men are so tiresome to read like you go back to the 19th, like what? Just stop talking. Like who asked you? They're writing like hundreds of pages about who gets to be white. And it's just like, what do you, just leave, just go on with your life. Um, and like, <laughs> and just like if they had, if they, part of this is why I know that it's all bullshit because they wouldn't need to spend so much time proving it if it was true. Um, you know, they like, so much of whiteness and white supremacy is just the energy they put into pretending it's real and then the fact that like that energy is spent on nothing is just why it's very obvious that it's just not it's just not uh so but with these people and the fact that they're spending so much energy on just defending these things, just defending it, and there's no way to win. Like, you don't even try to get into an argument with them. They'll just they'll just call their people on you. And it'll be a whole thing. But I don't know how to stop the fact that they're they're going to get they're going to get the clicks they want to get. You know, yeah. they're going to now it's clicks. Before it would have been something else. But like, you know, they have those platforms, right? We can tell the Atlantic to stop doing it. But the Atlantic's like, look. How much? How many media are you getting as many views as we're getting with this stuff? You know, I I saw 
Like my dad sent me that article that McWhorter wrote about white, white fragility or whatever, right? Now he doesn't really know anything about McWhorter's views other than like, you know, prominent black academic, right? That's all he knows about him. He doesn't know, my dad's not like a language guy, right? Um, and, you know, you know, my thoughts on McWhorter and the race thing, and not just the racism thing, but his own thing, because to me, just like my one friend who, well, maybe listen to this one day, but um, it, you know, this sort of, there is a lane that has been filled for a hundred years by the occasional black quote unquote intellectual who disagrees with all of the black people about racism being a problem. That is a lane. There's always one guy. It's usually, it's a couple, right? You know, but they, I don't, I'm talking about like political figures. I'm talking about people who are primarily intellectual, you know, intellect, whatever that means, but their job isn't in politics or business or whatever, because there's that's a whole different situation. It's similar, but you know, doing it for politics is a different reason. Um, but people whose main job is to argue and make points, right? To write and to make written arguments and so forth. And there's always been that guy. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it is a lucrative path if you can be that guy. They, you, there only gets to be a couple at a time. And so if you manage to be one, you, you better occupy that lane. And I think part of his animating thing is, and I don't know that this is the case for the others who I think are just generally threatened, is that the more powerful the forces of anti-racism get, they woke elect, whatever, uh, get, then, you know, being that guy <laughs> is actually somewhat threatened. Because I think that to some of these people, when I say that they feel threatened and they're afraid, some of their fears are legitimate, not in the sense of a conspiracy, but in the sense that they might actually lose some influence and power and legitimacy if, you know, the work that others are trying to do were successful. And I understand on a human level why they would be afraid of it. I don't understand. I mean, that what they're doing is ridiculous, but... <laughs> Like, so I think for him, like not being able to remain as emotionally secure in his, you know, heterodox black person thing is a big part of the animus, I should say. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and you can see it in the, the personal way that, you know, he gets into these feuds with people like Kendi and Coates uh, that like you know those are people with really huge platforms who can deal a significant blow to him and who uh, accuse him of doing exactly what he's doing and then um, the way that that he reacts you can see that it cuts yeah I mean the the, the actually it's it's almost impossible to argue on not that I've tried to, but to argue with people like this, not him, but people with these views on their terms, because you're not, you, you, you can't win, right? Um, sometimes it's worth doing to, if you have something of a platform to make a point for the people who are watching you, but you're never going to win. And part of the problem is the entire way that academia, you know, the literature and, 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 um, empirical evidence, whether it's language, education, whatever, 
racism and so forth has been constructed by the people who had the power. So they can go and easily go and pull out like, well, see, this is what, and if you want to talk about the gender critical thing, right, this is what it says in all of these papers and journals and and textbooks and so forth, right? Because those people were, those people wanted it to say that. (laughs) So, and then, you know, you get the problem of people who are arguing against it. If you try to play them on their turf and to say, but no, here's what the evidence is. And all the evidence is in the last like 20, 30 years, because that's when people really started talking about these things in a different way. And now it just seems like these were some Johnny come lately, you know, again, new speak sort of thing. Like I can see if I'm a completely, not there, there is such a thing, but a completely just external observer. And I see these two things and this guy's got 200 years to to argue and I've got 30 if that depending on what I'm saying it just doesn't look like 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 I have a leg to stand on um and so that is I mean it's also why I try to question the entire like premise of the argument and refuse to engage in the argument in the first place because you're not going to win with especially when you come like when it comes to like the gender situation or when it comes to race racism like even unfortunately among black people ourselves we have these views sometimes where like i saw this is so tiresome and i see this a lot um you know someone was having an art you never have facebook arguments but i see i see the facebook arguments and someone was talking about how um kamala isn't black because you know how these people they go on these things right and so you know he's saying that her dna and i'm like no don't start with the dna i'm like don't please don't with this um now there is like you can have a discussion about whether or not one's ethnicity would count as african-american because like that's but that's not the same thing that's not dna that's just a designation right um but like once you start talking about dna and race you're just like wait no no you're you're playing on their turf right right you can't you can't do that you know i i saw i was watching i was watching it was being watched in my apartment although when my wife hears this she will say that you know i didn't turn it off so um (laughs) Real Housewives of something, Orange County, and there's one on there who's like a COVID denier, whose whose mom actually got COVID, um, and she, um, they were all being like, they're basically all calling this one girl out for being girl woman out for being racist, right? And one of her arguments were just like, I took a DNA test. I'm 23 <laughs> percent. Everybody else just sort of laughed at. Her. But like, you know, it's goofy, but like that being the basis of the argument for the conceptualization of race for so long, it's hard to get out of people's head. Right. You know, you know, it's, it's like to find out that you have one African ancestor does not make you able to identify as black. Right. Um, it's a social reality. It's a cultural reality. Right. It's the way that you were brought up, the way you're living now, that doesn't get determined by your genes. Right. And 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 it, there, there's, right. So there's that. And it's the way that you're seen in, in, when you walk down the street, right? Which is related to, but not entirely based on your skin color. So, you know, I think sometimes 
the argument gets muddled. And there are arguments to have among the ways that anti-racism is, is being proposed, right? That there's nuances to it. There's, you know, maybe we should do it this way versus this way. But that's fine. I don't, there, that's your heterodox, right? This like, like, should we do anti-racism this way? Should we do anti-racism that way? Fine. But this idea that it's, it's like, has anyone ever asked this man or any of these men, but mostly I'm talking about my border now because he pisses me off. Like, <laughs> it's, it's like, has anyone asked this man what the opposite of anti-racism would be? <laughs> You know, so he has these ideas about what should be done, right? He just the other day posted about like, here's an anti-racism training that I like. And it's 100% individualism. Every, you know, human being has value regardless of race. It's very colorblind. It's very um, Western civilization invented all the best things and nobody else, you know, it's got all of these buzzwords of what um, people might consider to be classically liberal, right? Which is this. Yeah, um, oh, the classic liberals. Yep, yeah, same thing. Yeah, by conservatives of the phrase liberal to be like, hang on a minute, doesn't liberty mean freedom? That's us. We like freedom, right? Classic liberal. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's, I think he, he is really pro colorblind anti racism, which seems like an oxymoron, but there you go. Yeah, you know, being. Avoiding color and not talking about it um, is the way some people think is the best way to do things. Um, There are people who think that that really is the best way to raise a child of color. Um, But the world doesn't really care how you raise them. Um, Like now, like there's, there's, this is something I have to think about, right, with Ezel, right? I think about, I don't think about, like, I'm not going to tell him he's Black or something like that. I think about what, because he's, you know, he's, to some extent, multiracial. His grandmother's white, right? So, you know, I, 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 he will know her, depending on how long everybody's alive and all that, but, um, and he's met her several times. But my point is, like, we have to think, you know, I, I think in my head, I probably would say Black multiracial, something like that, you know? Yeah. But they, they're not going to be, you know, calculating percentages when he's 10 years old walking down the street, you know what I'm saying? Um, unless he gets much lighter skinned, like he's not going to see anything else. Um, he's going to have experiences that he needs explained and contextualized. Right. And just because my daughter isn't going to have those experiences, that doesn't mean that she's, you know, not mature enough to have those conversations. If, you know, if your son is old enough to have racist experiences, then my daughter is old enough to find out what those are and how to fight them. Right. And that's why they've been doing it on like Sesame Street and stuff and people are mad and that's fine. People are so mad and and I am definitely not mad because I think, you know, even in, we don't, we don't get to see a lot of babies in real life right now because of COVID, but um, my friends who have babies her age uh, a few of them are not white and are going to have experiences that my baby is going to witness and that she needs to make sure she's not making worse and that she needs to make sure that she has the tools to help make better. Yeah. And 
And, and you know, I think about McWhorter and his whole, you know, color evasive and just like we don't even talk about and the bootstraps and actually tell them all the good things. And if they, if we just f- feed them healthy food, that everything will go, you know, his idea of a healthy food diet or something like that, everything will go better. But like, I honestly think that that, that um, it's really just, I think in some ways he couldn't have been anybody else. Because if he he was probably raised by people who believe that to some extent, um, he believes wholeheartedly that he was someone who worked hard to get to where he is and he got what he got because of that. And therefore that is true of everyone else. So anyone who has not done what he's done has not earned it. They don't deserve it, right? So if you give them, supposedly give them the skills that will allow them to earn it and they don't apply the skills or they don't work or whatever, then they don't deserve it. And that's, I think that that is all of these men. And again, they're not all men, but they're mostly men. Um, A lot of it is that they believe in their own exceptional nature, right? Um, And that they deserve what they have. And a lot of, the arguments that they're railing against are arguments that point out that they don't necessarily deserve what they have. (laughs) And that is what makes people very uncomfortable to believe you don't deserve what you have. Um, And and that's one of the core beliefs of kind of conservatism in America in general is everybody has what they deserve right now. Right. So if something, and it's, it's why so many people would die because yeah. they believe that the people who die are weak and therefore they deserve it. Um, they will twist their minds to believe that about their own parents. If it happens to them, like, you know, that well, they just, it was their time. Um, and it's just like, yeah. So, you know, I had, my godfather was a little, he wasn't like that. But like he had moments um, where he thought, for example, when I was in graduating college, the, they invited all the black seniors to a, an event for the black seniors. And there's a separate event where we would, you know, be celebrated. Um, and, you know, he, he, he hated things like that. He didn't want to, you know, separate himself and, and so on. He, he actually went to Columbia too. Um, and the he was very much like you know believed that if I you know became fluent in French and all these things then then there would be no stopping me and so forth and I had this really sort of you know it was this sort of achieve your way out of racism or to him really achieve your way out of race altogether there it is (laughs) um thing and I do wonder what he would think about the stuff I'm doing now. He died a while ago. Um, but uh, that is true. It, it's like you see this in, in people who are just sort of, you know, singular either in, in some ways. And like, to some extent, I do understand it, especially, I mean, I don't know how old my water is, but like, I understand that people at my dad, at my, my parents' age, I disagree. Uh, but I can see how it might occur if you, your family, you came up from Jim Crow and then you're the one person who ended up doing whatever in, in Manhattan and, and, and everybody else you knew didn't do that. I can see how you would believe that yourself. But 
this is not who McWhorter is. <laughs> That's not him. You know, um, he just believed in the myths that the country has been handing down to people and because it worked out for him. And he's, he's what I think that the schools that I went to wish that I were, wish that I was, had become. Um, because if I was doing that, I'm sure all the schools would be very happy to put me in all the alumni magazines. Um, but, uh, you know, they would just, they would love it. And that, that's what I think the, you know, sort of American exceptionalism loves. It's not that you're not allowed to not be a white man. It's that if you aren't that, you have to be the person who fully buys into the system as such. And that's, you know, that's how he, that's why he has the platform, right? Um, not just with the anti-anti-racist stuff, but for all the years he's had a platform. You know, he would tell you it's just because he did good work. Um, but I, when you're the only black face in a white space, there's always a reason why you're that face. And it's something I think about a lot, especially in like language teaching. And it's, you know, it makes me uncomfortable sometimes because it's just like, I have to say these things, but I do wonder sometimes why I'm the person who they're letting say these things. Yeah. There so. is, um, there's one thing, so I have, I've been going back through the McWhorter catalog, right? Cause I've been interested in the certain terms and where they came from. So woke, um, neo-racism, that's a new one. And um, one of the things that I have realized is some, some of the ideas that he has are not totally off base. For example, his perception that some white anti-racism is extremely performative uh, and self-serving. And um, we noticed that, right? That's something that, that we've talked about a lot. And um, this idea that like, a lot of white people are, are taking this moment of extra racial consciousness and all these book lists and like learning the right words, learning the right way to act um, in the hopes that they will seem good. And it's all self-serving, you know. Um, but the idea that, that all anti-racism is like that, uh, that, that's kind of a darker twist to the story. Um, but, but, you know, those insights that he has where he says, like, look, I've seen some of these performances and I don't buy them and they feel like somebody's just looking to be liked. Um, if he, if he would read, you know, some of the critical race writing, uh, that he hates so much with just a, a grain of, of, uh, positivity, he might find that they're saying the same stuff, you know? Yeah. I think that that's the thing, right? Because unlike the others, he, he does occasionally have some points. That's why he makes me mad because, because like he could, he could do it. Um, like he, he, it's, it's there, I see it. Um, and uh, you know, because if he says that a lot of anti-racist training is performative and it is, um, but then he identifies he doesn't identify the locus of the issue with that correctly. He right. says the issue is anti-racism. Right, right. He, he says the problem is anti-racist training as a concept, mm -hmm. but the problem is anti-racist training in execution. Right. 
and you know denier of systemic racism just does not get you anywhere right and, and, and you'll see it where you know for in different places he'll flip and he'll he'll acknowledge the existence of systemic problems right and you know it's because his solution to that is not to do the trainings and therefore basically keep things as they are. Um, and it's like, mm, mm. do them individualistically. You know. Yeah. Uh, and the, because the problem is that like, it's true that a, a, a one-off training, he's not really going to do anything no matter what the topic is. Um, because ultimately they don't have any teeth, you you know, if you did a training and at the end of it, like somebody lost their job or something, maybe it would work, but like, it's not really how training. They don't work because they're, they don't have any teeth or because like, there's not lasting effects. He thinks that that would be the worst possible thing. Right. Right. If, if people lost their jobs, if people, even the idea that, you know, he, people might have to reflect on times that they've behaved in a racist way to him is unacceptable because, and again, this goes back to his thing about it being religion, you know, this idea that he's been piloting for three, four years now that, um, that it's a religious cult, anti-racism. He's compared it to things like struggle session, which I find real gross, um, or uh, confession of original sin. He's used that one a lot. Um, and he finds that totally unacceptable. I, I can see where the parallel might be between it and confession. Um, What's interesting to me is that, um, in all the curricula that I've seen of, of these kind of anti-racist trainings, all that reflection happens on a piece of paper that you keep, that doesn't go, you know, you're You're just thinking to yourself. (laughs) Right. Nowhere do you have to admit things which is the different part about the stuff because when I do the things I make people talk about stuff only problem with that is that sometimes it's a bunch of white people and like one black person they're like I don't want to hear this so I have to figure out how to do something better about that in a little breakout yeah it's really tough in trainings if you're not the target that to to avoid a lot of pain you know like um I've had to deal with some like sexual harassment in the workplace trainings where I'm like this just hurts me to hear because now I have to think about, you know, experiences that I've had. So thanks for that. Yeah, right. Exactly. I've seen, yeah, not, not with that, obviously, but like with when they do like, you know, anti-racist training and especially when like people express things that aren't like the worst, but you're just like, uh, <laughs> then it's and, decision time. Like, do I, do I yeah. make a mess here or do I just let it go? Right. Um, and, you know, that sort of like repression is, you know, it takes a toll. I mean, it's the stuff I do with my job all the time is that there's a lot of stuff where I'm just like, I could say something, but then it's not going to work. So I'm really going to get myself in and in, in just dig in a hole. Um, and so anyway, with, with McWhorter, like it's, it's, you know, the same with, with my friend, like there's, there's stuff in there, you know, I'm just like, that's what's so frustrating about it because like you know that that they could but his career and stature he believes are dependent upon him having frankly probably simply having these cordial relationships with certain people 
right? Whether they're business or academic or whatever, right? Like if you think about it, if you won't read it, but the interest convergence thing, right? You know, like if none of these things will change unless it becomes in the interests of whiteness or white people to change them. Um, and since it's not in the interests people whiteness to change and they're not going to change um it will change in ways that are acceptable to whiteness right as long as whiteness is there pulling the strings um and he has invested himself in this system so it is not in his interest to change either right, right? even though he can kind of see it <laughs> like that's the thing he can kind of see it uh but it is not in his interest to change because he's invested in the system as it's um, so the the upshot of that is every time somebody does push for a little change, he goes on the attack, right? He did it with the the letter to the Linguistic Association. He egged on you know masses of internet trolls to send death and rape threats to the people who had uh, publicly accessible emails who were on that letter. Um, fortunately, I was not one of them because I was unaffiliated at the time. But oh, people who had public emails, they got an earful. Um, and, you know, anytime campusreform.org comes up with anything, uh, which I don't know how much your listeners know about that organization, um, but he's going to bullhorn it. Um, yeah, this, this is a kind of a, a pseudo uh, journalistic endeavor called Campus Reform, where um, their stated mission is to uh, point out leftist professors. Oh, it's one of those. Okay. Whenever yeah, you so say reform, it's usually that stuff. Is for one student to get uh, angry with some professor and they'll just write an email to campus reform and campus reform will make a story out of it. Um, and then certain, you know, academic freedom, quote unquote, types will amplify it and make people's lives more complicated. Uh, journalism. Because um, <laughs> that's, that's how journalism works. Um, you know, I it, didn't go to journalism school, but uh, I'm going to say, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, because that's the thing, like, that, that to be so invested in this system. Um, and, 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 and what I, what I, my point with all of this stuff is, is, okay, people being invested in the system because it benefits them personally is not, that's not surprising, right? That's yeah. just people. Um, but, uh, I don't think these people are actually happy. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, far from begin for me to fully psychoanalyze these people, right? And I shouldn't be doing that. I'm not diagnosing anybody. But my point is like, I understand why someone would defend a system that protects them. That is not complicated or surprising or really, I don't like, I can't. I can't be here. I can't sit here and be like, "How dare you do that?" Like, I, like, like, like. I, I think it's. I, I disagree with it morally, but like, I'm not going to be surprised that someone is going to defend something that makes them, you know, makes their lives easier. It's unfortunate, but people are selfish. Whatever. But, but, is it really that great for them? Like, it's it's bad for a lot of people, but like, I don't know that this system is really good for them. Uh, yeah, money, yes. But I'm just saying, like, 
is it really all that great of a system if you have to spend this much time, <laughs> you know, on the internet yelling at people? Like, do, like what, what, why, why are you doing this? I understand that this has sort of become their careers to some extent, but like, if you were just having a good time, I feel like you don't, you wouldn't need, you know, that's what, that's why, you know, that they, it's like they, they don't protest too much. It's like, what, what, why are you spending so much energy on this man? Uh, and I, that's why I compare it to when I was 23, 24, because I had nothing going on. And I don't just mean in terms of not having a job in Korea, I had a job, obviously, but, you know, when I came back to New York, it's because I lived for these little fights. You know, especially with this one guy who, like, in retrospect, turned out to be just, just a fascist. You know, like, like I let I got rid of him long before I realized that. But like, I just like, here he comes. It said like his name commented, and I was like, yeah, all right, here we go. And he should be like page, and I'm like, put my page, put my page, right? At least this, this was all, and he had nothing going on. It's like he just. He just like live for this stuff, you know, um, and you know how to get the last word and all this stuff. So I, uh, my point is, I honestly just think it's kind of sad in a lot of ways, <laughs> you know, like these these men who, in their own estimation, have ascended to the top of their fields, right, and you know believe for however many years or decades that they were unimpeachable intellectuals and but to be so insecure that a little bit of critique and then eventually like people being like you should stop having this much power is is so devastating to you that you turn your whole life into this is survive on their reputation so it's a material damage when people are talking about how they might not be right. And that's one of the problems with the version of the system, because if you are more engaged in a, like a critical theory, you know, something that's not based on the current system, it is not a bad thing for someone to challenge what you're saying. Right. You're going to you know? Right. Or, or, you know, when you write something now, you would expect three years later for your writing to be pretty different. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't mean contradictory, but like, you're like, no, I wouldn't have used that term. If, you know, even now I've been doing the same presentation on decentering whiteness and language teaching for like six months now, and I would do it differently. I, I, I do it slightly slightly differently now just because I learned stuff but like some of the stuff has to stay on the screen because it's in the article right so I I have to tell them what's in the article (laughs) but I wrote the article like last January and like since then I've done so much like thinking and stuff I'm like I don't know I wouldn't say that now but I (laughs) have so (laughs) but but I I have to just you know present the article um been digesting things and and pushing ideas and evolving right and that's the thing for them that's not good because they are very much considered authorities intellectual authorities in a very narrow idea of what's right and what's wrong Mm -hmm. and you know 
I get that you can occupy your little niche. I'm sort of occupying this like whiteness and language teaching niche, but to be just unable to adapt is not really good for being any kind of supposed intellectual. Um, and I think that what the more they do this to anyone, because uh, like, like my, my dad sent me the article, not because he thought anything about McWhorter, he just vaguely heard of him as a, a person, right? Um, but if my dad was paying attention to, to things like that or, or just regular people, I don't know that they, like, I think, I think they just, it would be kind of embarrassing, you know, to people who aren't their acolytes. I mean, mm-hmm. to the, to the, to the, the, the reason they have, like, they have this much power is because the general public has vaguely heard of them. Right. And so they're able to be put in large places like the Atlantic or whatever. But the really like sycophantic people is not as many as their general vague awareness. And they are, you know, they're playing to the base. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And the sycophants are running around telling other people, this guy is great. He's, you know, totally, he tells it like it is. He's a new thinker, heterodox thinker. Uh, and, And it convinces people. I've had people tell me like, He's not even that political calm down. It's like, really? <laughs> well, let's discuss what it even means to be political. But uh, yeah. so we could go on at this forever. If you have a, a final thought about these men. Um, yeah, I think um, there's there's kind of a hierarchy, right? So there's these, these top level academics, people who teach at Ivy League schools, those, those kind of people who have a relatively polished way of presenting ideas that if you track them, they get really seedy really quickly. So you've got like your pinkers and your McWhorters, and then you've got these kind of like ex-academic heterodox guys, like your your Colin Rice and your Quillette people. Um, And then you go a little bit deeper and you have these like never even really touched academia, but sure have a lot to say about it types like a Helen Pluckrose. You know, and now we're getting into things like the SoCal Squared hoax, you know, the people who um, pretended that they were showing us something about academia by writing these fake papers and getting a couple of them into some pay-to-play journals. You oh, know, those and, journals. <laughs> and said, hey, look, we, we fooled you guys, very funny. You know, one of them is, is a paper that almost even makes sense, right? It's like, uh, just like a feminist manifesto and it's, it's all about like we have to organize together and, and make uh, inroads in politics the end you know it's, it doesn't have anything like really weird in it um, and that's the only one that hasn't been retracted uh, and then uh, there's a split there right where you've got your James Lindsay who's gone completely off the rails right he's doing great replacement uh, conspiracy theories he's doing Um, China made COVID on purpose conspiracy theories. He's doing Trump didn't really lose conspiracy theories. Um, And the people upstream of him, you know, the people who are a little bit more fancy have uh, either disavowed him or pretend they never knew him, but they're still linking to his blog on their websites. They're still contributing to organizations that fund his blog. You know, if you just look a little bit under the surface, 
you know, Helen Pleckrose, who, who wrote Cynical Theories with him, said, I don't like what he did, uh, what he's talking about right now. And his fans just completely bullied her until she took it back. Uh, and Counterweight, which all of these fancy people are, are part of, they're academic affiliates of, um, takes most of its material from James Lindsay's blog, New Discourses. So, you know, they'll, they'll on the surface disavow these really alt-right conspiracy theory, uh, you know, white supremacists, uh, while still taking their ideas for themselves, repackaging them, or just linking you right to their blogs. This reminds me of that scene in Star Wars Prada where she talks about how she just buys things cheaply and Miranda goes on a whole explanation about how it all came from fashion anyway. Blue and how yeah. Got, yeah. <laughs> so it's just like, I, um, I've been in the muck. I've been watching, you know, the word woke travel through, you know, or, or this, this word neo-racism, which is basically reverse racism, you know, watching it sneak through these different circles and you're going like well they have to be talking to each other well right they i mean to me the the thing is someone who tries to you know push against these sort of things not directly at these men the way that you spend your time doing sometimes but <laughs> um but <laughs> but you know these ideas is sometimes you know, that little bit of a gut feeling is, is a good indicator because, you know, one may not really have the time to go and search and see that they're connected to more white nationalist stuff or whatever, even if they're not saying that stuff explicitly. But if an argument someone's making just seems a little bit off, there's usually a reason for it, especially when it comes to like race or racism. And like, you know, I, uh, there's just to be eloquent with it. The, the, the fact is, when it comes to, to, to people like this, um, we really have to pay attention to, you know, who they're connected to, because if they're they're not just speaking into the air as much as it seems that way right? Like the, the people who were listening to them. And especially when it's someone who's like a McWhorter or, or a Picker or something like that, like, you know, the schools that they're affiliated with are, are going, are giving them, they don't even have to do anything. They just, you know, they, they, that gives them the ability to slap a quote from someone like them onto anything if it, you know, right. and they're, they're dressing things up in, in, in language that makes it seem like, you know, white grievance politics, but in in academic language. And uh, and if you look at you know what think tanks they're fellows at, you know who who is uh, giving them a platform, uh, it it gets real hairy real fast. You get into Manhattan Institute, you get into um, Discovery Institute, which is like a Christian fundamentalist group and. And that's where James Lindsay and Chris Rufo come in, actually going on the TV shows that they knew that Trump watched to tell him specifically about critical race theory and how divisive it is and how it's, you know, encouraging people to hate 
fight people and encouraging people to hate America. And then bam, we have this executive order. You know, there's there are real ramifications to this this kind of network. Right, because there's no way he knew what that was before they said that. Oh, absolutely yeah. not. All they had to do was go on Tucker Carlson and say, here's the problem. And then immediately you can see the timestamps. You know, he, he starts tweeting about it. There's a memo going out. President Trump just found out that we're spending money on these trainings. They're divisive and un-American. We're going to change it all. We're going to stop funding that stuff. It's not allowed anymore. Tucker Carlson. Well, I mean, that's why the title of my book comes from something he said, because <laughs> it's true. It yeah. is. Um, so, you know, there's, yeah, it's, it's a mess. Let's just put it that it's way. It's a mess. 